give our attention to God's Word as Eliphaz is going to be the first of the three friends to respond to Job's lament of chapter 3. And so we'll have Eliphaz's speech in chapters 4 and 5, and then we'll um, hear Job's, the first part of Job's speech, his response in chapter 6. Let's give our attention to, uh, to God's Word. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made, him fir- you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken, the strong lions uh, perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And then in verses 12 through 21, uh, Eliphaz tells Job about a sort of a dream, a vision that he had, and the core of it is in verse 17, this message. It's a little bit spooky, but you know, he says in verse 16, this, uh, this spirit stood still, I could not discern its appearance, a form was before my eyes, there was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's his question. And then um, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 8, as Eliphaz continues to uh, encourage Job. Uh, Let's pick it up, verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up. He shatters, but His hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven no evil shall touch you. In famine He will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall also know that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. 
That is Eliphaz's speech, and then we come to Job's response. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Temeluk, the travelers of Sheba Hope, they are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For now you have, become, you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? So far the reading in God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Oh Lord, now we come to this inspired scripture. We thank you for it and we ask the Lord that you would Bless us that we might hear it. Father, thank you that you give your Holy Spirit exactly for this thing. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort the hearts of your suffering and sorrowing saints and give, Lord, wisdom to all of us, wisdom that is true, that's from above, wisdom that's found in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. <coughs> well, as I was... Um, writing uh, this sermon this week, I actually ended up writing, I think, two sermons, uh, but I'm not going to give them both to you today. Um, but this is, in a sense, part of a two-part series. So if there are things that, uh, that um, we come across and um, that you wonder about, feel free to send me uh, questions, thoughts, comments, uh, but know that we're going to be um, continue to deal with this 
general topic next week, Lord willing, as we get into the speeches of the speech of Bildad and then Job's response again. The title of my message this morning is uh, Comfort Fail. Melvin Tinker uh, recounts the story of the Reverend Joseph Parker, minister of the City Temple Church in London from 1874 until his death in 1902. Parker said that up till the age of 68, he had never ever had a religious doubt. But then his wife died, and in the anguish of her loss, his faith all but collapsed. Parker says this, he wrote this, He said, in that dark hour, I became almost an atheist, for God had set his foot upon my prayers and treated my petitions with contempt. If I had seen a dog in such agony as mine, I would have pitied and helped the dumb beast. But God spat upon me and cast me out as an offense, out into the waste wilderness and the night black and starless. Well, last week as we were looking at Job chapter 3, we... We learned that dark nights of the soul are not unchristian experiences. God's people really do have times of deep despair. Times when they feel they are overwhelmed by loss, overcome by evil, abandoned by God. Christians, God's people have these experiences. If you read the Psalms, it's clear that David did. You know that Elijah did. He was just overcome by the forces of evil. He felt that he just wanted to die, just as Job is asking and praying. Uh, We know that Jeremiah felt this way, and we know that Jesus, our own Savior and Lord, uh, cried out uh, in despair, why have you forsaken me? These are not unchristian experiences. The question that's before us this morning is, how do you comfort Someone like a Joseph Parker, a man who says hard things about God in the, um, the night of his grief. Uh, how do you comfort a man like Job? A man sitting in the abyss of everything that he has lost. What do you say to this apparently God-forsaken man rotting away, literally, on an ash heap, though he did nothing wrong? How do you comfort him? What words are you going to bring to encourage and teach him? That's the question and the challenge that uh, is facing Job's three friends. They have come to comfort him. This morning we're first going to look then at the comforters and then at the counsel of Eliphaz and then Job's response. Um, if you remember when we were in chapter 2, we just jumped over the last little bit of that chapter as, uh, as we were introduced to Job's three friends. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to chapter 2, verse 11. But it, I'm just going to read uh, very briefly here. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now these men have received a lot of bad press over the years. Unfortunately, most of it is well-deserved. But we miss the drama of the text if we demonize these men. They're not evil men. They're good men. They are devout godly men, well-respected men. 
They believe in Job's God. You will most likely meet these men in heaven. And they've come to give Job what they believe is godly counsel. They're not going to just speak from just their own sort of general, vague um, sense of what's right or wrong. They're going to speak what they believe is godly counsel. And they're going to speak as his friends, people who genuinely care about him. They're not Facebook friends in that sense, right? They, they are covenanted friends. They're friends like Jonathan was David's friend. And they've come from a distance to show him sympathy and comfort him. A, uh, Christopher Ash points out that the, the word comfort here is a, it's a weighty, rich, significant term. Ash says to comfort involves speaking to the mind and heart of the sufferer in such a way as to change his mind or heart. It intends to bring about a change in how the sufferer thinks and feels about his or her suffering. Boys and girls, if you've ever uh, broken a toy at home and maybe you were grieving because it was your favorite toy and now it's broken and you can't play with it and your mother comes and, and she comforts you and she says, uh, honey, I'm, I'm so sorry, but daddy can fix it when he gets home. And that changes how you feel. It changes how you think. You can dry your tears. Daddy will be home shortly. That's comfort. When um, God tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. God then gives Isaiah words to speak to comfort Israel. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double grace, double goodness, double kindness for all her sin. Those are incredible words of encouragement and hope and comfort for Israel. Well, that's what Job's friends have set out to do, to speak tenderly to Job and to comfort him, to give him encouragement and hope as they speak truth to him. Now, if you've ever read the story, <clears throat> the book of Job, you know that they fail abysmally. Uh, it's, it's complete failure. In fact, their comfort not only fails to comfort Job, it offends him. It heaps insult to injury. But the question that I want to ask this morning is, why did it fail? Why did this, uh, this counsel fail to encourage and comfort? What, what did it get wrong? And so let's look then secondly at the council. When the three, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> when the three friends showed up, <coughs> if you remember, they just sat for a week with Job. They said nothing. But then Job speaks, and Job's um, speech is curse, cursing the day that he was born, and then lamenting before God, wishing that he could die. Uh, that is clearly motivates them to take action and to, and to speak. And so Eliphaz uh, goes first. Eliphaz is most likely the oldest. Uh, Eliphaz is sort of the leader of the group. When God addresses them at the end of the book, he'll address Eliphaz uh, standing for the other two. <clears throat> Eliphaz is most uh, certainly the oldest. He represents the wisdom of the aged. And he's going to speak um, kindly and reasonably and biblically. 
to Job. This is, we're going to recognize his counsel because these are the sorts of things that people have said to us and that we've said to other people. Let's look at his counsel. First of all, uh, Eliphaz <clears throat> says to Job, verses 3 through 6, Job, you need to be consistent. You've instructed many. You've strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You've made him firm. Uh, you've made firm than feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. Now it touches you and you're dismayed. And it's a, it's a very gentle admonishment. Uh, Job, you've counseled other peoples. You've encouraged other peoples. Other peoples. You've, you've reminded them of God's ways and his purposes. But now that it's come to you, Job, um, you're, you're impatient and um, you seem to have forgotten all the counsel that you uh, gave to other people. Just be consistent, Job. Receive the counsel now that you've given to so many others. And then secondly, verses 7 through 11, and this is really the core of Eliphaz's counsel, but um, be wise. Uh, Job is, uh, is part of wisdom literature. Uh, what, is, what is wisdom? Biblical wisdom is the life that is pleasing to the Lord, the life that brings health and fruitfulness and blessing. And Eliphaz, basically in verses 7 and following, says to Job, Job, you need to remember the moral order of the universe. Look at verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Those are critical verses because they reveal to us the, uh, the underlying functioning worldview of the three friends. Every speech that they make is going to be coming back to this basic idea, this basic framework, this way of viewing the world. See, in their mind, uh, the moral universe is structured in a very specific way. God is God, utterly sovereign, ordaining everything that happens. But God is also just. And so God judges the wicked and God blesses the righteous. That's the moral framework of the universe. You reap what you sow. The innocent don't perish, Eliphaz says. right? But those who sow iniquity, those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble, what do they reap? Well, exactly what they've sown. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. It is a, a fixed moral principle. Um, Christopher Ash calls this in his book, he calls this the system. And I think that's a good word for it. This is the system, the way the world works, the paradigm in their mind for the way the world works. God is sovereign, he blesses the righteous, he punishes the wicked because he's just Therefore, right, draw the conclusion, just connect the dots. Therefore, Job is suffering. Job must have sinned. It is as clear to them as the nose on his face. They're, given what they are convinced is true concerning the nature of God as a, as a sovereign God and as a just God, uh, Job's suffering is not difficult to figure out. Now, they're going to try to gently help him come to this and to, and to realize there's blessings in recognizing this truth, but this is the truth. If Job is suffering as he is, Job must have sinned. As the speeches go along, they'll get more insistent and angry about it. 
However, they believe that God is also good. They know that God is good and willing to forgive, and Eliphaz continues with his counsel and encouragement. Uh, C, uh, trust the Lord. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 8 through 16. As for me, Job, not telling you what you need to do, if it were me, I would seek God. I uh, I would commit my cause to God. I would trust the Lord. Because he does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And then he he lists the things that God does. And all of them are are true. And you maybe have counseled someone like this. I I think in this situation, you just need to trust the Lord. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And what? And he'll make your path straight. Which usually in our minds means he will bless you. The good times will return. The blessings of God will flow. Now again, those are true words. This is biblical counsel that Eliphaz is giving. Fourth, Eliphaz says, submit to the Lord's discipline. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 27. He reminds Job, blessed, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Now again, that's good biblical counsel. The author of the book of Hebrews gives exactly that counsel when he's writing to God's suffering uh, saints in the New Testament era. And and he says to them, don't forget this word of encouragement. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He treats, uh, he's treating you like sons. And the discipline will yield a harvest of righteousness for those who are trained by it. And so we can see that the speech of Eliphaz is by and large a very good speech. It's a biblically sound speech. So it's, it's stunning when we realize that it fails miserably in the task for which it was sent. It does not accomplish the purpose Eliphaz had in mind. Job is not comforted. In fact, he's He's outraged, he's incensed, he's offended deeply by this good counsel. Why? Well, put yourself in Job's shoes. I think you'll see why. In 5 verse 4, Eliphaz confidently speaks uh, regarding the fool. His children are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. Speaking about the fool. Well... Job's children were crushed in the gate. All ten of them. And no one was there to deliver them. Is Job a fool? Is that why all this has happened to him? In 5 verse 25, Eliphaz is waxing eloquent concerning the blessings that uh, God gives to those who accept his discipline. And he says this, verse 24, You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall also know that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. But Job's tent is not at peace. It's shattered He's not missing a few things from his flocks. The flocks are gone, completely, entirely gone, and all the servants who attended to them. His offspring are not many. They're dead. 
All of them. He has no descendants. Can you imagine how offended Job must have been to hear these words? It's no wonder he responds as he does. So let's look at his response. He begins by reminding his friends that his rash words flow from the vexation and the desperate calamity that has happened to him. God has assaulted him. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. And my spirit drinks their poison. His words, you see, are not without reason. Verse 5, does the wild donkey bray when he has grass? Does the oxen low when he has fodder? When animals are satisfied and fed, do do they cry out? No, they don't. So why am I crying out? Because I'm dying. Instead of critiquing my words, recognize the devastation from which they flow. In verses 8 through 13, Job shows that his hard desire is not to speak against God, it's not to dishonor God. In fact, this is why he wishes to die. He doesn't, you see, he doesn't want to curse God and die as his wife had suggested. He doesn't want to curse God to his face as the devil promised God that he would do. He wants to die precisely so that he won't curse God. And he says, I'm willing to suffer. Uh, Look at verse 10. "This, This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. If I could die without cursing God, that would be my comfort. Just let that be what happens to me. God just let me go. And the reason, you see, is because his strength is running out. Verse 12, is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh bronze? No, I'm I'm just a man. Just a helpless man whose resources have been driven away from him. But as it is, He rebukes Eliphaz for sinning against him with his cold orthodox counsel. Verse 14, he withholds kindness from a friend, forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You've not dealt right with me, Eliphaz. Did I ask for money? Did I ask for gifts? Did I ask you to rescue me? No. All I asked for was kindness. And Job challenges them to show him his supposed error. Look at verse 24. Teach me, and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. You see, Job is just saying, deal with the reality of my experience, the reality of my loss, the reality of my abandonment by God, and that the arrows of the Almighty are in me, though I have done nothing wrong. Deal with the truth. Don't don't offend me with these pious platitudes. You see, Eliphaz has spoken to him out of the tradition of wisdom, things that are quote-unquote known to be true concerning the way the world works. These are things that Job had once ascribed to. Eliphaz reminds him, this is the counsel you would have given other people. 
But in the context of his devastation, Job realizes that the system doesn't work. It doesn't ring true. It, it has no comfort in it. It's like the, 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 the streams of, uh, of the wilderness where when there's rain and snow, there's water. But when it gets hot, when the water is needed, the, the, the caravans make their way hoping there's water there and it's dust and dry and stones. Nothing there. And that's what his friend's counsel has been, is, is like. You see, he's offended by these platitudes. And I think it's important to just to think about what is the offense of a platitude? The offense of a platitude is not that it is false, but that it is, it is thoughtless. It doesn't sufficiently engage the reality that, that is being addressed. And so Job doesn't charge Eliphaz with saying things that are not true. The problem is that they're not sufficient sufficiently true. They don't face and engage the reality of Job in his grief, in his innocence, and his being devastated by God. Job's friends are applying the system, but they're not seeing Job. So that's at the heart of his plea in, in verse 28. Look at me. What a, what a thing for Job to say. Look at me. See me. Look me in the face and deal with the reality of my integrity and the reality of my devastation at the hand of God. Is there injustice on my tongue, verse 30? Am I lying? You just, you just, you come at me with these, with these, these platitudes, these truths, but they don't fit. They don't face the truth of who I am and, and what I'm experiencing. Look me in the face. Am I lying about God, what God has done to me? Am I lying about my integrity? Show me my sin. You see, the wise principles of, of wisdom in religion don't address, can't answer the profound reality of Job's experience. All these orthodox truths fail to comfort him. The system isn't sufficient. In fact, it's offensive. It's crushing. Something is wrong. Something's missing. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. Those are biblical truths. Right, the, the core principle of the system is you reap what you sow. That's the core principle. You get what you put in, you get out. That's how the world works. And you might say to yourself, well, that's a biblical truth. Paul says exactly that in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God does discipline those he loves. That's biblical truth. God does bless those who honor him. He does, he does punish the wicked. You see, we can find biblical support for nearly every single thing that Eliphaz has said. So how could we say that Eliphaz has failed? 
Well, it's a good question. Um, the, the common suggestion um, that I found in, in sermons I've listened to and, and, and commentaries is that the error was in the application. That Eliphaz and his friends said true things, but they were true things at the wrong time. What they should have said, is, if they said anything, right? Week one was a good week because they didn't say a thing. They should have just kept that going. Empathize, sympathize. Job, we're here for you. And let it be that. Maybe in the future there's a time to speak these truths. This isn't the time. Well, the failure, I'm convinced, is vastly greater. This is not a case of bad timing. It's a, it's a, the failure is in content, not context. And I say that because that's what God says at the end of the book. In Job 42, verse 7, we read, After the Lord had spoken to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, leader of the group, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God's anger burns against Eliphaz, this good, gentle, kind, devout, godly man, because Eliphaz has failed to speak what is right. God doesn't say, Eliphaz, bad timing. He says, Eliphaz, you've not spoken about me correctly. He's rebuked for false teaching. Now there's a conundrum then, isn't there? Because how can God charge Eliphaz with failing to speak what is right when we could say Eliphaz is just quoting Scripture? Right? Let the weight of that settle. How can God say, Eliphaz, you have not spoken of me what is right when we can give proof texts for everything Eliphaz says. Well, as with most false teaching, the error is not so much in what is said as what is not said, what is left out. And there are several critical things missing from the system. We're going to deal with this, uh, um, Lord willing, again next week, so let me just uh, touch on them today. But notice, first of all, um, there's nothing in Eliphaz's speech about eternity. It is a closed system, right in the here and the now. And, she, and, and that just doesn't ring true. Uh, um, yes, God is just, and he unerringly and infallibly will bless the righteous and judge the wicked, but it's not in this life. It's a judgment day. That's when God will exercise his judgment. In this life, uh, the wicked will often flourish. Right? Just ask the pimp or the drug dealer. Uh, tell him, tell him, crime doesn't pay. And he will confidently show you, no, 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 crime pays very well. I wouldn't be doing it if it didn't pay. In this life, the righteous will suffer in this life. They'll suffer wrongly in this life, unjustly. It is the, the mark of a Christian. Jesus promises in this world, you will have trouble in this world. <clears throat> Peter says, don't uh, think something strange is happening to you if you're facing fire trials of many kinds. 
kinds of, you've been called to this. And so you see, if, if you miss the perspective of, of eternity, the council being completely conscribed to this world, you're going to be comp- utterly confused. You're going to say, this doesn't work. God says he'll bless me. I'm not being blessed. Some of you maybe this morning need to be reminded of this. You're looking at the circumstances of your life right here and now, and, it, and they're hard, and you don't understand them. And you may be depressed and anguished and despairing, but you're, you've lost sight of eternity. Yes, the trials are real, and they certainly hurt. But that's what life is like here and now. Everyone will suffer. Jesus promises it. That's what this is like here and now. But it's not always going to be like this. These are temporary afflictions. Preparing, you see, for us an eternal weight of glory. So that's the first thing that Eliphaz's um, counsel has nothing of eternity in it. But secondly, the system doesn't account, and this is maybe more important even, it doesn't account for suffering that is simply for the glory of God. We looked at that back when we, um, chapter 1. <clears throat> that Job, you see, is not suffering for his sin. We're told that specifically. Job is suffering for a different reason altogether. He's not suffering for his sanctification. God is not disciplining him. God is not training him. This is not about sanctification. Job's suffering is purely and simply for the glory of God. We have to have that in our category. The system doesn't have that. You see, and it shows up in John 9. There's this, there's this fascinating exchange between Jesus and his disciples. In John 9, they come upon a man who was born blind, blind all of his life. And his disciples apply the system. Jesus Who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Of course, you see, the the only reason they're asking that question is because it's it's patently obvious to them somebody has sinned in in a moral universe where God judges the wicked and this blindness is clearly judgment. Somebody has sinned. Jesus, who was it? Him or the parents? Jesus says to them, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents has nothing to do with their sin but that the works of God might be displayed in him now just for a moment think about being the blind man are you happy with that answer are you willing to be blind all your life so the glory of God might be displayed in you? Because that's clearly what Jesus teaches. You see, and that's the reality of Job's suffering. His, his sorrows have nothing to do with his guilt. It has everything to do with the work of God. God displaying his glory. God showing the principalities and powers of heaven that there is a man on earth who worships God not for his gifts, but for his goodness, because God is God. Friends, we need to remember that all suffering, all suffering 
of God's children is first of all not about your sin but about the glory of God. Now we'll flesh that out more next week, Lord willing. All suffering of God's children is not first of all primarily about your sin. It's not primarily about your sanctification. People are going to get frightened here. It's about the glory of God. Why is God sanctifying you? For his glory. For his glory. Why is he disciplining you? That your life might yield a harvest of righteousness for his glory. Primarily, fundamentally, the bottom line, God is doing what he's doing in our life for his name's sake. That's what we see in Job's life. And we need to remember this because we often forget it. We, we can live according to the system. I um, was reading a book by uh, Rick Thomas called Suffering Well. And he talks about karma Christians. Karma Christians. People who live by the conviction that you, you, you reap what you sow. That that's the fundamental bottom level principle that drives uh, reality. He says, I counsel people like this all the time. Here are some manifestations. I missed my daily Bible study and something terrible has happened to me and I realize now that, that uh, it's, there's a direct correlation between my failure in my devotions and the trouble in my life. I reaped, I'm, I, I sowed, I'm reaping. Another one, my child is not walking with the Lord and I realized I was not a good parent. If I had been a better parent, the Lord would have motivated my child to love him and follow him. I sowed, I'm reaping. I'm stuck in habitual sin. I know the Lord is going to get me for this. How many people don't walk with the sense that at any moment the, the shoe is going to drop? God, at some time, he's not going to let this go on forever. God is not mocked. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to get punished for what I'm doing. And that's the fundamental premise under which they live. Another one. We fornicated while we were dating and now we have a miserable marriage. The Lord is punishing us. You reap what you sow. That's karma Christianity. We make a direct link between our behavior and God and uh, what we think is God dealing with us. And in the process, we crush our own soul but we're leaving something out, just like Eliphaz. You see, the most critical thing that the system leaves out is the one and only thing that will actually bring comfort. The great irony of the system is that it asks a magnificent question. It was back in chapter uh, 4, verse 7. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Eliphaz meant it rhetorically. God meant it prophetically. Who, being innocent, ever perished? Who, being innocent, was cut off and condemned and crushed by God, though he had done no wrong? Who was it? You know the answer. Jesus was. Jesus was. He was cut off. He perished. It pleased the Father to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It pleased the Father. Why? Because, because he was bearing our iniquity, bearing our sin. And he, and he died in order that we might be redeemed and reconciled to God. And that the, the, 
the storehouse of God's kindness and grace and love and favor can now be poured out upon us in Jesus. You see, Job didn't need a proverb, a wisdom saying wasn't going to help. What Job needs is a person. Someone to join him in his sorrows and to mediate for him before God. Oh, that I had one to mediate for me, he'll say a little bit down the road. But friends, a mediator is exactly what God has provided. And in your sorrows, you see, God doesn't give you theological uh, systems. He doesn't give you religious maxims or wise proverbs. What does he give us in our sorrow? He gives us Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. You see, so, so when you're in the trial, don't look for answers. Look for Jesus. Look for Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because you see, God promises you in Jesus that you do not ultimately reap what you sow. We'll talk a bit more next week about that. You reap what Jesus has sown. Isn't that the gospel? The gospel is not that Jesus died so that in your reaping what you're sowing, it won't be quite as difficult. Jesus died so that the psalmist prophetically can rejoice, Psalm 103, he does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He does not reward us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his compassion. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forget not all his benefits. That's the gospel. That because Jesus Christ, the innocent man, perished bearing our sin, that means that God always deals with us according to his steadfast, unchanging grace and kindness in Jesus Christ. It's why the benedictions say, may the grace and peace and mercy of God be multiplied to you. Lavished on you. Because that's precisely what Jesus Christ has come to accomplish. That God promises to deal with you in kindness and grace according to Jesus Christ. Even when you've sinned grievously. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. An innocent man perished so that you and I, the sinner, could live. Our righteous Jesus was condemned precisely for this reason. So that we, his precious, sinful, yet forgiven children, could know the oceans of his grace and his love. Why do we suffer? God doesn't tell us all the reasons why we suffer. He didn't tell Job why he suffered. He didn't give Job answers when he shows up in the end of the book. What he gives Job is himself, and that was enough. And friends, he does the very same thing for us. Jesus doesn't just teach us things in his word. Jesus presents himself in his word. To your faith, and says, come, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest.
Friends, this morning, as we live the life God has called us to live and suffer the trials God has ordained that we suffer, let's not forget Jesus. Jesus, our righteousness, our wisdom, our peace. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to bear our sin and to suffer a hell we cannot imagine. As you experience the wrath of God, do our iniquity and transgression so that we could experience all the love and kindness and favor and grace of God. Lord, forgive us for believing in the system more than we believe in the gospel. And for living as though you were a avenging God, avenging your uh, judgment and wrath upon your children. For we are not speaking rightly of you when we forget about your son. Lord, I, I pray that you would just minister this truth deeply to the hearts of your people. That we would feel the burden roll off and the guilt and the shame washed away. And the dark cloud of despair being dispelled by the sunshine of the favor of God on us, on our life in Jesus Christ. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to the message this morning, singing a song that uh, we're familiar with here at Harvest. Um, you might not be um, in other places, but it's a beautiful song. I encourage you to sing along as we can, as surely as the dawn.
after the benediction, we're going to close singing that wonderful hymn, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, number 465, I believe, in your hymnal, number 465. Let's uh, now receive the benediction, the blessing of the Lord your God. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us an eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.